We begin part two with page nine of the indictment. The criminal agreement and acts to affect the object of the conspiracy. The defendant's use of deceit to get state officials to subvert the legitimate election results and change electoral votes. Shortly after Election Day, which fell on November 3, 2020, the defendant launched his criminal scheme. On November 13, the defendant's campaign attorneys conceded in court that he had lost the vote count in the state of Arizona, meaning, based on the assessment the defendant's campaign advisors had given him just a week earlier, the defendant had lost the election. So the next day, the defendant turned to co-conspirator one, whom he announced would spearhead his efforts going forward to challenge the election results. From that point on, the defendant and his co-conspirators executed a strategy to use knowing deceit in the targeted states to impair, obstruct, and defeat the federal government function, including as described below. Arizona. On November 13, 2020, the defendant had a conversation with his campaign manager who informed him that a claim that had been circulating that a substantial number of non-citizens had voted in Arizona was false. On November 22nd, eight days before Arizona's governor certified the ascertainment of the state's legitimate electors based on the popular vote, the defendant and co-conspirator one called the Speaker of the Arizona House of Representatives and made knowingly false claims of election fraud aimed at interfering with the ascertainment of, and voting by, Arizona's electors, as follows. A. The defendant and co-conspirator one falsely asserted, among other things, that a substantial number of non-citizens, non-residents, and dead people had voted fraudulently in Arizona. The Arizona House Speaker asked co-conspirator one for evidence of the claims, which co-conspirator one did not have, but claimed he would provide. Co-conspirator one never did so. B. The defendant and co-conspirator one asked the Arizona House Speaker to call the legislature into session and hold a hearing based on their claims of election fraud. The Arizona House Speaker refused, stating that doing so would require a two-thirds vote of its members, and he would not allow it without actual evidence of fraud. C. The defendant and co-conspirator one asked the Arizona House Speaker to use the legislature to circumvent the process by which legitimate electors would be ascertained for Biden based on the popular vote, and replace those electors with a new slate for the defendant. The Arizona House Speaker refused, responding that the suggestion was beyond anything he had ever heard or thought of as something within his authority. On December 1st, co-conspirator one met with the Arizona House Speaker. 
when the Arizona House Speaker again asked co-conspirator one for evidence of the outcome-determinative election fraud he and the defendant had been claiming, co-conspirator one responded with words to the effect of, We don't have the evidence, but we have lots of theories. On December 4th, the Arizona House Speaker issued a public statement that said, in part, No election is perfect, and if there were evidence of illegal votes or an improper count, then Arizona law provides a process to contest the election, a lawsuit under state law. But the law does not authorize the legislature to reverse the results of an election. As a conservative Republican, I don't like the results of the presidential election. I voted for President Trump and worked hard to re-elect him. But I cannot and will not entertain a suggestion that we violate current law to change the outcome of a certified election. I and my fellow legislators swore an oath to support the U.S. Constitution and the Constitution and laws of the state of Arizona. It would violate that oath the basic principles of republican government, and the rule of law if we attempted to nullify the people's vote based on unsupported theories of fraud. Under the laws that we wrote and voted upon, Arizona voters choose who wins, and our system requires that their choice be respected. On the morning of January 4, 2021, co-conspirator 2 called the Arizona House Speaker to urge him to use a majority of the legislature to decertify the state's legitimate electors. Arizona's validly ascertained electors had voted three weeks earlier and sent their votes to Congress, which was scheduled to count those votes in Biden's favor in just two days' time at the January 6 certification proceeding. When the Arizona House Speaker explained that state investigations had uncovered no evidence of substantial fraud in the state, co-conspirator, too, conceded that he didn't know enough about facts on the ground in Arizona, but nonetheless told the Arizona House Speaker to decertify and let the courts sort it out. The Arizona House Speaker refused, stating that he would not play with the oath he had taken to uphold the United States Constitution and Arizona law. On January 6th, the defendant publicly repeated the knowingly false claim that 36,000 non-citizens had voted in Arizona. Georgia on November 16, 2020, on the defendant's behalf, his executive assistant sent co-conspirator 3 and others a document containing bullet points critical of a certain voting machine company, writing, See attached. Please include as is, or almost as is, in lawsuit. Co-conspirator 3 responded nine minutes later, writing, It must go in all suits in Georgia and Pennsylvania immediately with a fraud claim 
that requires the entire election to be set aside in those states and machines impounded for nonpartisan professional inspection. On November 25th, co-conspirator 3 filed a lawsuit against the governor of Georgia falsely alleging massive election fraud accomplished through the voting machine company's election software and hardware. Before the lawsuit was even filed, the defendant retweeted a post promoting it. The defendant did this despite the fact that when he had discussed co-conspirator 3's far-fetched public claims regarding the voting machine company in private with advisors, the defendant had conceded that they were unsupported and that co-conspirator 3 sounded crazy. Co-conspirator 3's Georgia lawsuit was dismissed on December 7th. On December 3rd, co-conspirator 1 orchestrated a presentation to a judiciary subcommittee of the Georgia State Senate with the intention of misleading state senators into blocking the ascertainment of legitimate electors. During the presentation, A. An agent of the defendant and co-conspirator 1 falsely claimed that more than 10,000 dead people voted in Georgia. That afternoon, a senior advisor to the defendant told the defendant's chief of staff, through text messages, Just an FYI, a campaign lawyer and his team verified that the 10K-plus supposed dead people voting in Georgia is not accurate. It was alleged in Co-Conspirator 1's hearing today. The senior advisor clarified that he believed that the actual number was 12. B. Another agent of the defendant and Co-Conspirator 1 played a misleading excerpt of a video recording of ballot counting at State Farm Arena in Atlanta and insinuated that it showed election workers counting suitcases of illegal ballots. C. Co-conspirator 2 encouraged the legislators to decertify the state's legitimate electors based on false allegations of election fraud. Also on December 3rd, the defendant issued a tweet amplifying the knowingly false claims made in Co-Conspirator 1's presentation in Georgia. Quote, Wow, blockbuster testimony taking place right now in Georgia. Ballot stuffing by Dems when Republicans were forced to leave the large counting room. Plenty more coming, but this alone leads to an easy win of the state. Unquote. On December 4th, the Georgia Secretary of State's chief operating officer debunked the claims made at Co-Conspirator 1's presentation the previous day, issuing a tweet stating, The 90-second video of election workers at State Farm Arena purporting to show fraud was watched in its entirety, hours, by Georgia Secretary of State investigators, shows normal ballot processing. Here is the fact check on it. On December 7th, he reiterated during a press conference that the claim that there had been misconduct at State Farm Arena was false. 
On December 8th, the defendant called the Georgia Attorney General to pressure him to support an election lawsuit filed in the Supreme Court by another state's Attorney General. The Georgia Attorney General told the defendant that officials had investigated various claims of election fraud in the state and were not seeing evidence to support them. Also on December 8th, a senior campaign advisor who spoke with the defendant on a daily basis and had informed him on multiple occasions that various fraud claims were untrue expressed frustration that many of co-conspirator one and his legal team's claims could not be substantiated. As early as mid-November, for instance, the senior campaign advisor had informed the defendant that his claims of a large number of dead voters in Georgia were untrue. With respect to the persistent false claim regarding State Farm Arena on December 8th, the senior campaign advisor wrote in an email, When our research and campaign legal team can't back up any of the claims made by our elite strike force legal team, you can see why we're 032 on our cases. I'll obviously hustle to help on all fronts, but it's tough to own any of this when it's all just conspiracy shit beamed down from the mothership. On December 10th, four days before Biden's validly ascertained electors were scheduled to cast votes and send them to Congress, co-conspirator one appeared at a hearing before the Georgia House of Representatives Government Affairs Committee. Co-conspirator one played the State Farm Arena video again and falsely claimed that it showed voter fraud right in front of people's eyes, and it was the tip of the iceberg. Then he cited two election workers by name, baselessly accused them of quite obviously surreptitiously passing around USB ports as if they are vials of heroin or cocaine, and suggested that they were criminals whose places of work, their homes, should have been searched for evidence of ballots, for evidence of USB ports, for evidence of voter fraud. Thereafter, the two election workers received numerous death threats. On December 15th, the defendant summoned the incoming acting attorney general, the incoming acting deputy attorney general, and others to the Oval Office to discuss allegations of election fraud. During the meeting, the Justice Department officials specifically refuted the defendant's claims about State Farm Arena, explaining to him that the activity shown on the tape co-conspirator one had used was benign. On December 23rd, a day after the defendant's chief of staff personally observed the signature verification process at the Cobb County Civic Center and notified the defendant that state election officials were conducting themselves in an exemplary fashion and would find fraud if it existed. The defendant tweeted that the Georgia officials administering the signature verification process were trying to hide evidence of election fraud and were terrible people. In a phone call on December 27th, the defendant spoke with the acting attorney general and acting deputy attorney general. During the call, the defendant again pressed the unfounded claims regarding State Farm Arena 
and the two top Justice Department officials again rebutted the allegations, telling him that the Justice Department had reviewed videotape and interviewed witnesses and had not identified any suspicious conduct. On December 31st, the defendant signed a verification affirming false election fraud allegations made on his behalf in a lawsuit filed in his name against the Georgia governor. In advance of the filing, co-conspirator 2, who was advising the defendant on the lawsuit, acknowledged in an email that he and the defendant had, since signing a previous verification, been made aware that some of the allegations and evidence proffered by the experts has been inaccurate, and that signing a new affirmation with that knowledge and incorporation by reference would not be accurate. The defendant and co-conspirator, too, caused the defendant's signed verification to be filed nonetheless. On January 2nd, four days before Congress's certification proceeding, the defendant and others called Georgia's Secretary of State. During the call, the defendant lied to the Georgia Secretary of State to induce him to alter Georgia's popular vote count and call into question the validity of the Biden electors' votes, which had been transmitted to Congress weeks before, including as follows. A. The defendant raised allegations regarding the State Farm Arena video and repeatedly disparaged one of the same election workers that co-conspirator 1 had maligned on December 10th, using her name almost 20 times and falsely referring to her as a professional vote scammer and hustler. In response, the Georgia Secretary of State refuted this. Quote, You're talking about the State Farm video, and I think it's extremely unfortunate that co-conspirator one or his people, they sliced and diced that video and took it out of context, unquote. When the Georgia Secretary of State then offered a link to a video that would disprove co-conspirator one's claims, the defendant responded, I don't care about a link. I don't need it. I have a much, Georgia Secretary of State, I have a much better link. B. The defendant asked about rumors that paper ballots cast in the election were being destroyed, and the Georgia Secretary of State's counsel explained to him that the claim had been investigated and was not true. C. The defendant claimed that 5,000 dead people voted in Georgia, causing the Georgia Secretary of State to respond, Well, Mr. President, the challenge that you have is the data you have is wrong. The actual number were two. Two. Two people that were dead that voted. And so your information's wrong. That was two. D. The defendant claimed that thousands of out-of-state voters had cast ballots in Georgia's election, which the Georgia Secretary of State's counsel refuted, explaining, We've been going through each of those as well, and those numbers that we got, that defendant's counsel was just saying, they're not accurate. Everyone we've been through are people that lived in Georgia, moved to a different state, but then moved back to Georgia legitimately. They moved back in years ago. 
This was not like something just before the election. E. In response to multiple other of the defendant's allegations, the Georgia Secretary of State's counsel told the defendant that the Georgia Bureau of Investigation was examining all such claims and finding no merit to them. F. The defendant said that he needed to find 11,780 votes and insinuated that the Georgia Secretary of State and his counsel could be subject to criminal prosecution if they failed to find election fraud as he demanded, stating, And you are going to find that they are, which is totally illegal. It's, it's, it's more illegal for you than it is for them because you know what they did and you're not reporting it. That's a criminal, you know, that's a criminal offense. And, you know, you can't let that happen. That's a big risk to you and to the Georgia Secretary of State's counsel, your lawyer. The next day, on January 3rd, the defendant falsely claimed that the Georgia Secretary of State had not addressed the defendant's allegations, publicly stating that the Georgia Secretary of State was unwilling or unable to answer questions such as the ballots under table scam, ballot destruction, out-of-state voters, dead voters, and more. He has no clue. On January 6th, the defendant publicly repeated the knowingly false insinuation that more than 10,300 dead people had voted in Georgia. Michigan On November 5, 2020, the defendant claimed that there had been a suspicious dump of votes, purportedly illegitimate ballots, stating, In Detroit, there were hours of unexplained delay in delivering many of the votes for counting. The final batch did not arrive until 4 in the morning and, even though the polls closed at 8 o'clock. So they brought it in and the batches came in and nobody knew where they came from. On November 20th, three days before Michigan's governor signed a certificate of ascertainment notifying the federal government that based on the popular vote, Biden's electors were to represent Michigan's voters. The defendant held a meeting in the Oval Office with the Speaker of the Michigan House of Representatives and the Majority Leader of the Michigan Senate. In the meeting, the defendant raised his false claim, among others, of an illegitimate vote dump in Detroit. In response, the Michigan Senate Majority Leader told the defendant that he had lost Michigan not because of fraud, but because the defendant had underperformed with certain voter populations in the state. Upon leaving their meeting, the Michigan House Speaker and Michigan Senate Majority Leader issued a statement reiterating this. The Senate and House Oversight Committees are actively engaged in a thorough review of Michigan's elections process, and we have faith in the committee process to provide greater transparency and accountability to our citizens. We have not yet been made aware of any information that would change the outcome of the election in Michigan, and as legislative leaders, we will follow the law and follow the normal process regarding Michigan's electors just as we have said throughout this election. On December 1st, 
the defendant raised his Michigan vote dump claim with the attorney general, who responded that what had occurred in Michigan had been the normal vote counting process and that there was no indication of fraud in Detroit. Despite this, the next day the defendant made a knowingly false statement that in Michigan, at 6.31 in the morning, a vote dump of 149,772 votes came in unexpectedly. We were winning by a lot. That match was received in horror. Nobody knows anything about it. It's corrupt. Detroit is corrupt. I have a lot of friends in Detroit. They know it. But Detroit is totally corrupt. On December 4th, Co-Conspirator 1 sent a text message to the Michigan House Speaker reiterating his unsupported claim of election fraud and attempting to get the Michigan House Speaker to assist in reversing the ascertainment of the legitimate Biden electors, stating, Looks like Georgia may well hold some factual hearings and change the certification under Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2 of the Constitution. As co-conspirator 2 explained, they don't just have the right to do it, but the obligation. Help me get this done in Michigan. Similarly, on December 7th, despite still having established no fraud in Michigan, co-conspirator 1 sent a text intended for the Michigan Senate Majority Leader. So I need you to pass a joint resolution from the Michigan legislature that states that the election is in dispute. There's an ongoing investigation by the legislature and the electors sent by Governor Whitmer are not the official electors of the state of Michigan and do not fall within the safe harbor deadline of December 8th under Michigan law. On December 14th, the day that electors in states across the country were required to vote and submit their votes to Congress, the Michigan House Speaker and Michigan Senate Majority Leader announced that, contrary to the defendant's request, they would not decertify the legitimate election results or electors in Michigan. The Michigan Senate Majority Leader's public statement included, we have not received evidence of fraud on a scale that would change the outcome of the election in Michigan. The Michigan House Speaker's public statement read, in part, We've diligently examined these reports of fraud to the best of our ability. I fought hard for President Trump. Nobody wanted him to win more than me. I think he's done an incredible job. But I love our republic, too. I can't fathom risking our norms, traditions, and institutions to pass a resolution retroactively changing the electors for Trump simply because some think there may have been enough widespread fraud to give him the win. That's unprecedented for good reason, and that's why there is not enough support in the House to cast a new slate of electors. I fear we'd lose our country forever. This truly would bring mutually assured destruction for every future election in regards to the Electoral College, and I can't stand for that. I won't. On January 6, 2021, the defendant publicly repeated his knowingly false claim regarding an illicit dump of more than 100,000 ballots in Detroit.
Pennsylvania. On November 11, 2020, the defendant publicly maligned a Philadelphia city commissioner for stating on the news that there was no evidence of widespread fraud in Philadelphia. As a result, the Philadelphia city commissioner and his family received death threats. On November 25th, the day after Pennsylvania's governor signed a certificate of ascertainment and thus certified to the federal government that Biden's electors were the legitimate electors for the state, co-conspirator one orchestrated an event at a hotel in Gettysburg attended by state legislators. Co-conspirator one falsely claimed that Pennsylvania had issued 1.8 million absentee ballots and received 2.5 million in return. In the days thereafter, a campaign staffer wrote internally that co-conspirator one's allegation was just wrong, and there's no way to defend it. The deputy campaign manager responded, We have been saying this for a while. It's very frustrating. On December 4th, after four Republican leaders of the Pennsylvania legislature issued a public statement that the General Assembly lacked the authority to overturn the popular vote and appoint its own slate of electors, and that doing so would violate the state election code and constitution. The defendant retweeted a post labeling the legislators cowards. On December 31st and January 3rd, the defendant repeatedly raised, with the acting attorney general and acting deputy attorney general, the allegation that in Pennsylvania there had been 205,000 more votes than voters. Each time, the Justice Department officials informed the defendant that his claim was false. On January 6th, 2021, the defendant publicly repeated his knowingly false claim that there had been 205,000 more votes than voters in Pennsylvania. Wisconsin On November 29, 2020, a recount in Wisconsin that the defendant's campaign had petitioned and paid for did not change the election result and, in fact, increased the defendant's margin of defeat. On December 14th, the Wisconsin Supreme Court rejected an election challenge by the campaign. One justice wrote, Nothing in this case casts any legitimate doubt that the people of Wisconsin lawfully chose Vice President Biden and Senator Harris to be the next leaders of our great country. On December 21st, as a result of the state Supreme Court's decision, the Wisconsin governor, who had signed a certificate of ascertainment on November 30th, identifying Biden's electors as the state's legitimate electors, signed a certificate of final determination in which he recognized that the state Supreme Court had resolved a controversy regarding the appointment of Biden's electors and confirmed that Biden had received the highest number of votes in the state and that his electors were the state's legitimate electors. 
that same day in response to the court decision that had prompted the Wisconsin governor to sign a certificate of final determination. The defendant issued a tweet repeating his knowingly false claim of election fraud and demanding that the Wisconsin legislature overturn the election results that had led to the ascertainment of Biden's electors as the legitimate electors. On December 27th, the defendant raised with the acting attorney general and acting deputy attorney general a specific fraud claim that there had been more votes than voters in Wisconsin. The acting deputy attorney general informed the defendant that the claim was false. On January 6th, 2021, the defendant publicly repeated knowingly false claims that there had been tens of thousands of unlawful votes in Wisconsin. We've come to the end of Part 2 and the midpoint of this 45-page indictment. In Part 3, we will pick up where we left off on page 21. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS wrote us.